And this is my question. I'm such a talker and I give way too much context and Chelsea's looking at me like, enough context, <laughs> ask the question. Everyone's mental health journey looks a little different, which is part of why healing can feel so hard. There's no one size fits all approach. And our guest today knows that firsthand. She's taken what she's learned from her experiences and turned it into a gift to others. Mina B is a writer, speaker, therapist, wellness coach, and mental health educator who specializes in community care or healing through cultivating a sense of community. Mina works with people to help them find peace within themselves and within their communities, no matter what they've been through. We are so grateful to have her on the show today. So stick around. This is In Good Faith. All right, we are beyond excited to have our guest today with us, Mina B. And babe, I think what I'm so excited about Mina is there are people who say they make the world a better place, but Mina truly makes <laughs> the world a better place. She makes the social media world a better place. She makes Instagram a better place. She's been a clinical therapist for 10 years and also with the charity work that you do with nonprofits and social justice. So we're so excited to have you here and really grateful for all of the work that you do. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to speak with the both of you and have this conversation together. Seriously, we have so much to ask on an actual just personal level. Thank you for being the person that you are, the work that you're doing, the effort it takes. Uh, it is no small thing. I'm so amazed because you've chosen to educate yourself and you started out obviously pursuing a master's degree in social work from New York University, which is our daughter's dream school, by the way. That's She's right. 13 and that's where she would love to go to school. She has some time to figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what got you into the field of first social work and then mental health advocacy and everything that you do? Yeah, I mean, I'm the traditional therapist who has their own mental health history. And that kind of brought me to the mental health field. From young, I struggled with depression and anxiety. And when I say from young, I'm talking about maybe around the age of five, six years old. Wow. Um, of course, at that age, you don't know what's wrong with you until you become an adult and you pay attention to the hypersensitivity, the constant crying, the gut aches that you have. And those are common signs when a child is struggling with anxiety. That anxiety and depression came from me being bullied as a child and really being emotionally impacted by it. And because it happened to me so young, during the age where my brain is developing rapidly, and when you pay mm. attention to just what it takes to cultivate a child's social emotional development, when you can get all this love and care and nurturing in your home, but you go out into the world and people don't like you, people don't accept you, people tease you for things that you can't change about yourself, you really start to internalize that. And that's kind of what I basically did. And so that depression and anxiety kind of grew with me as I got older and impacted my self-esteem. And when I reached high school, that's when my mental health became very debilitating, mm. um, very severe to the point where I was having suicidal ideation. I started cutting as a form of self-harm. And I was just like in a really, really dark place. Now, of course, my trauma history has holes in it because of memory and things like that. When I tell people this story, they're kind of like often in awe. But when I would talk to my peers and my friends and they could not relate to me, 
that actually made me feel better. (laughs) And I know that a lot of people are like, you know, it feels weird being alone. But the way I internalized things when I was young was when I saw people around me who said that I don't know what you're feeling, that gave me hope that well, I can be like you. Mm. If you don't know what this feels like and you're not going through this emotional turmoil, that means there's another side. That means there's a way out of this. So what can I do to get like you? What can I do to be better if you don't know what this feels like? And that is what pushed me into going to therapy myself. And then I had wanted to do so many things as a kid, but I always knew mental health was in my heart. So that's when I went on to study social work and become a mental health therapist. But my own experience was really like, if there are people in this world who are good, why can't that be me? Why do I have to be the anomaly? Why do I have to be different and suffer when people are happy? That means I can be happy too. (laughs) And that's how I healed. (laughs) It's really incredible that that not being normal gave you hope. Yeah, Because I feel like normally we want to be normal and then it's scary to not feel normal. That's incredible. Okay, I'm such a parent. We have three kids, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, currently (laughs) trying to raise humans. Yes, not the easiest job, but we love it. And one dog. And so I'm so curious, as you were going through that journey at a young age, did you involve either of your parents at all? I did not. Growing up, we never talked about mental health in our home. And I think mm. traditionally most households don't. In this era, I think a lot of people are. But growing up in the 90s, yep. I don't think that was a thing. The other thing is both of my parents are from Panama. So they're immigrants to this country. Back home, people aren't really talking about mental health and what depression is. Mm. And culturally, in my household, my parents kind of viewed mental health as either substance abuse or homelessness. No one really knew what depression was or anxiety was. So when I was emotionally suffering, it was just kind of like, you got to get out of bed. Like, you got to get to work. You got to get to school. You got to, all the stuff you're feeling, you got to suck it up and just like, life is hard. We all are going through something. You got to just deal with it. So I never knew the language to come home and Mm. share with my parents, like what was going on for me. I just didn't know how to navigate that. And I think there was a part of me that felt some sense of shame because I knew something was so wrong with me and I I just felt different. I could talk to my friends about it, but when it came to my parents, I just did not know how to express to them. And I guess, again, like I said, watching how they are as people and understanding their story and understanding how they had to work through their trauma, not by actively healing, but by doing and by being productive and by being busy. I kind of internalized that as I just got to suck it up. So I never really talked about my mental health until I was going to grad school and I became an adult. And by then, unfortunately, my father had already passed away, but my mom knows more about like things that I was going through. It's hard for me even to process what you've just expressed. As early as five years old, you have memories of struggling um, with anxiety or fear or depression. Fast forward, when were these hallmark moments where you begin to see progress and why? That's a good question. So I want to start off with saying the journey has not been linear. And I think sometimes Mm. we approach healing as like, it's just this one way street. 
For me, there were many different roads and hills and valleys and all these different things that I had to navigate to get to where I am right now sitting here. But I do think when I started to notice progress was when I started to see myself differently. Mm -hmm. As a result of being bullied, I was really fixated on other people's opinions. I was really fixated on being liked and what do I need to do to conform and change myself and adjust to fit in in certain settings. And I noticed progress when I started to be at peace with just being me and allowing Mm -hmm. people not to like me and allowing people to decide whether they wanted to be in a relationship with me. And that started to happen for me as a result of being in therapy at a very early age in my 20s. You know, as when I reflect on my childhood, again, it's it's not black and white, but I do think that first step was when I went to see my guidance counselor and I realized I'm grieving and it's okay for me to grieve and maybe there needs to be a space for me to talk about it to someone. You know, Mm -hmm. like I said, I didn't feel like I could talk to my parents about it. And I grew up in church too. And I grew up hearing those messages of read your Bible and depression isn't of the Lord and all these things that kind of made me feel like, well, this isn't even a safe space because Mm -hmm. if you're preaching these things and I don't feel what you're preaching, what are you going to say to me if I come to you with my truth? Whoa. So... I didn't even feel safe seeking pastoral guidance, even guidance in the church. So my safety was when I went to see my guidance counselor and that was in high school. And then after that, leaving high school and going off into college, now you're an adult and you're facing the real world. And I started to feel like, you know what, I'm growing more into being okay with who I am. Uh, One of the biggest issues I had was severe, severe acne. That was something I got bullied for. And I said, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to cover myself up with makeup. This is who I am. This is how I look. I'm going to just embrace that. And those small little things, like it sounds so tiny, but it was those tiny things that played a role in my healing because I needed to get to a place of self-acceptance. I never had that as a child. It was always, I need validation. I need validation. I want to be loved. I want to be cared for. And I made poor choices by trying to be cared for by being in relationships and friendships with people who are harmful to me and didn't deserve me. And I started to realize once I get to a place of accepting me for who I am, that helps me get to a place of understanding what I deserve. And that made me make better choices as I moved forward. Wow. I do want to poke on this for a second, just because what you said is so powerful and So my dad had severe panic attacks growing up and we grew up in church as well. And he's told the story publicly that he went to his church for help one night when he was extremely suicidal. I think I was about 10 years old. My older sister was 12 and went really to his church for help because that's what you did. This is in the 80s. And really the answer he got was, well, you just need to come to Sunday night service. That's why you're feeling this. And Because he was only going to Sunday morning. He was skipping Sunday night. (laughs) Thank God my dad has enough enough good sense that he went to therapy. But honestly, we were the family in the 90s that had to like sneak the fact that my dad was in therapy or that we could have language around mental health. And I was, I'm really grateful for my parents for that, but I realized that wasn't normal. But I do feel like the church can be a great frontline defense or can be a good tool for providing language for people or recommending mental health. As pastors, I really want to realize that we are not mental health professionals, but we can point people in the in the right direction. What would you feel like the ideal relationship would be between the church 
professionals and community and the mental health community? I think there is a huge opportunity for the church to intersect with mental health. And I think as people, we engage in cognitive distortions and black and white thinking is a very common one. Mm. We see people struggling and we say, well, come to the youth service, read your Bible more. And we use that as like this end of the road solution. Mm. And we take away the power of and, meaning I can pray and go to therapy. I can read my Bible and go to therapy. I can join the youth program and do these things to take care of my mental health. And I think that spiritual healing is a part of our mental health. So I don't think that the church should not play a role in mental health tools and healing. I do think that the church can have a responsibility by one, finding ways to be trained on what mental health is, Mm. because a lot of us have varying opinions around what mental health is. And I think a lot of people need language where if someone is coming to you for pastoral healing and they're sharing with you, well, for the last two weeks, I've been crying a lot and I have not had an appetite and I am having a struggle to get out of bed. Those are common signs of severe depression. But if you don't have some sort of training around that, you might just say, well, maybe you need to read your Bible more. Maybe you need to be better connected to Jesus in that moment. And you don't realize that there's a missed opportunity there Mm. to really get to the root of what that depression is, the cause of that depression, and how can we intersect faith and mental health healing. So I can tell you to read your Bible. And I also know some really good grounding techniques. When you're feeling depressed, these are some tools and techniques that I've heard that you can do. So after you pray, maybe you want to do some journaling. After you pray, maybe you need to engage your five senses so that you can feel more connected to the earth so that you're less triggered in that moment, right? I don't think it's about pushing faith away because faith plays a critical part in our mental health and our healing, but I think it's about being more inclusive. And in order to be more inclusive, we have to educate ourselves. You know, Mm. if you have a client coming to you who's struggling with suicide ideation and you're telling them to read their Bible, there's a huge missed opportunity that might cause them harm. And so I think it's really all about, one, people in the church becoming trauma-informed. Because outside of that, too, look at the world we live in. Mass shootings, Mm. racism, poverty. Mm. These are risk factors that actually puts people at harm for developing mental health issues and becoming suicidal. So I think it's also important for us to recognize The Bible understands hardship. So why are we being blind to the hardship that's happening in the world? You know, so I think it's really important to also understand that there are triggers and, and risk factors that we face on a daily basis that can impact someone's mental health. And it's not because they don't have a relationship with Jesus. It's because I'm trying to have a relationship with Jesus in a world where it's triggering. It's a traumatic place to to live in. Like, God, why is this still happening? And we have all these questions that we have to continue to endure. We have to endure the world that we live in and find healing around that. So I think it's really important for the church to do what they can to educate themselves and talk about it more. When we think of community, we don't want people to just say, well, I need to go to my pastor Mm -hmm. or an elder for help. Who's my neighbor? Who's the person that I'm sitting next to in the church 
that I can be building community with daily. I may not see my pastor daily. I may not get the opportunity to talk to my pastor daily. But when the church is informed, that's what community care is. Because even if I'm not connected to Chelsea or Judah, the person sitting next to me is a part of my community that once they're educated and informed and we create an inclusive space where we're saying in this church, we talk about mental health and we educate people about mental health. I know there's a variety of people that I can turn to. And I don't just have to look for particular people on a hierarchy. I can say, well, Mm. there's a community here. And to me, that's what community care is all about. Wow, you are talking my language, and I'm very excited that you will be taking over leadership of Church Home. The board has <laughs> just voted while you were talking. I got them all on text. This is very exciting. I want to circle back because you identified something that is so meaningful to me, and and that is that a lot of your progress and healing came from self-acceptance. And someone said to me two days ago, you know, we can only accept others to the extent we Mm. accept ourselves. Can you speak a little bit further on self-acceptance, what that means, and and even as it relates to community dynamics such as um, accepting our neighbor? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think self-acceptance is a huge part of healing. And when I think of self-acceptance, it's about owning who we are, Mm. owning that this is the body that I exist Mm. in, owning that this is my skin color, owning that this is my hair texture, owning that this is who I am, this is what I bring to the table, recognizing that in the midst of that acceptance, differences can be honored. I think sometimes we think acceptance and belonging means assimilation. So if I Mm. enter this space, I have to be different to make others feel good. I have to conform. I have to play dress up with different personalities. I have to do all of these different things where acceptance means I'm going to bring myself to the table and I'm going to lay myself down and I'm going to just let you choose If I am the person you want to be in community with, I'm going to own Mm. that this is how I speak. I'm going to own that this is how I look. I'm going to own that these are the things that I value and care about and filter out the opinions. I'm going to honor that you can have an opinion, but your opinion is not fact, right? So we can recognize that we think differently. I can also respect you as a person for having a different opinion. I don't have to dehumanize you or belittle you for thinking differently of me, for thinking differently from me. Wow. So I think when we think of acceptance, it's really all about the work that you are consistently trying to do to change yourself. And even the work around like being more productive, being more busy. What are you avoiding about yourself Whoa. to just say, this is where I am? This is who I am. But then the other part of acceptance is this is what I feel. I think emotional acceptance plays a role in us being able to be more in tune with our self-worth. Because when I accept my emotions and I recognize I'm angry right now and I have a right to that. So I'm just going to sit with this and I'm going to process it. Versus I'm angry, but I'm not allowed to be angry. So I'm going to suppress it. Then I'm going to keep suppressing it. I'm going to keep suppressing it. And now I'm depressed or I'm exploding on people Mm. or I'm miserable and I'm unhappy because I don't even know how to be in in tune with my emotions. I've been hearing all my life that I'm not allowed to feel. And so 
being accepting of who you are means literally taking it all in and recognizing that this is just what makes me uniquely me moving through this world. I don't have to be like anyone else. When I walk into this room, you're going to get Mina. You're going hmm. to get what Mina thinks, what Mina says, how she acts, whatever it is that Mina identifies with, this is what you get in the moment. And I think that it's a very freeing practice to not feel like you have to assimilate and change parts of who you are to be loved or cared for. And I think what also is a requirement for self-acceptance is owning that everyone's not going to like me. I accept hmm. me for me. But you might not. And when you might not, if I haven't reconciled with that, I might decide that, you know what, maybe I need to change. Maybe I need to do these things. And a part of that self-acceptance journey is recognizing, again, that like to love me, I can do that on my own and I can be loved by people who choose to love me. And I might encounter people who don't want to honor me, who don't like me for a variety of reasons. And that's their inner work to do. That has nothing to do with me. I accept me for who I am. And if you choose not to accept me, we don't have to do life together. I can respect you and honor you as my neighbor and recognize that we just can't be in community. And that's fine. And I think that has played a role in me being able to be free and whole because I no longer am bonded to the opinions of others. It's wow. so powerful and so necessary to differentiate what you just said, the difference between self-acceptance and assimilation into a community. Yeah. I know for me, one of my lowest moments as a community leader was we were having open conversations around race just with our staff. And one of our black pastors and staff members made a comment. He said, you know, I struggled when I came here feeling like I couldn't bring my whole self, my whole black mm -hmm. self. So I stopped wearing my Jordans and I mm -hmm. bought a pair of common projects and I felt like I had to hide that part of myself. And that I was so proud of his courage to state that, you know, to people and to bosses and leaders. But I was so brokenhearted in that moment of Jesus. I don't want to be the person who leads a community where people have to assimilate in order to be accepted here. And I, f I feel like that's a common dynamic in community, whether it's a church community or a therapy community or even a family community. How do we create a space how do we create a community where people can bring their full selves, where people can accept themselves and not feel like they have to assimilate and why you see wholeness and healing that takes place in communities? Because sometimes it feels like the answer is I'm just going to go completely isolate and get by myself and get all of my stuff figured out. And then I'll try to come back to community. That would tend yeah. to be my response as a <laughs> self-proclaimed introvert. So how do we wrestle with all of these dynamics? Mm. You know, healing happens in relationships. And to be able to get to that place, we are going to have to do the uncomfortable work of checking in with ourselves to be able to create a space where people can feel safe in their community and where they can feel like they belong and where they can feel like we can honor differences. We first have to be willing to go deep and say, well, even though I want that, let me be real with myself and examine the parts of me that don't accept differences. Because I say I want it, but when I'm around it, how do I behave? Whoa. And we all are biased people. We want to yeah. pretend we're not. <laughs> we want to pretend we're perfect. And I want to love everyone. And so 
I couldn't ever have a racist ideology. I couldn't ever have an oppressive ideology, but you're human and you've been socialized in a country that has all of these different oppressive factors in it. Wow. There's yeah. no way it bypassed you, right? <laughs> and it didn't bypass you. And so I think the first challenge is us doing the inner work of assessing what did I learn about differences that makes me feel uncomfortable? When I'm around mm. certain groups of people, certain cultures, certain people who have different beliefs or ideologies, what did I learn about these people that might inadvertently cause me to oppress them? If I'm a white person, what did I learn about other cultures, right? And it's the other way around too, because even as a black person, when you're living in a world of racism, you might automatically think any white space is unsafe. So you're yeah. automatically going in there with your guard up and feeling like you can't bring your full self. But that's also inner work that I have to do because I need to truly believe that there are people, white people and other people of color and different races who love me and want to nurture me and show me care and support. So I have to challenge my own internal racism and my own internal biases. So I think when we think of differences, we first have to be willing to go deep and ask ourselves, what are some of the stereotypes we carry about other people? What are some of the beliefs that we have that make it hard for us to sit with other people and their stories? What's happening internally for us? Because that's going to be the thing that blocks you from being empathetic or compassionate mm. when you hear something that's different or when you see someone who looks different. You meet people as far as you've met yourself. So if I haven't gone deep I can't sit with you in your pain. Mm. I can't sit with you in the midst of you going through some sort of tragedy, even if we're not the same skin tone, even if we think differently. If I've gone deep enough to recognize there's a difference here, I can be empathetic with you. I can show you compassion and honor that we're different. But if I haven't done that inner work, I could potentially cause harm. You know, so I think it's really all about doing that work of challenging our own implicit biases that we have been socialized to have that we don't even recognize. I teach people when I'm doing my workshop something called schema. And it's a part of our brain that creates mental shortcuts so that when we process information, the brain has to process so much that the brain is like, all right, I'm going to give you an easy thing. So I'm going to create schema so that you don't have to think about this thing all the time. So an example of that is if you know how to drive a car, I guarantee every time you get in your car, you don't pull out the instruction manual <laughs> and say, well, how do I what's drive, what's the gas, what's the brake? You did that the first few times you learned, but because of schema, now you know, I don't even need the instructions. I just know exactly what to do. Same thing if I say there's an animal that walked in a room and it just barked. Are you going to say it's a cat? Of course you're not. Sound and images has taught your brain and schema that that's a dog. We associate a four-legged animal that barks with a dog. But now when we apply schema to people, because there's object mm. schema and there's animal schema. There's all types of schema, but there's also person-centered schema. So if I give you images and I say this type of person is dangerous, this type of person is unsafe, this type of person, because of their skin, because of their gender, your brain is going to process that information and make a shortcut. And now you're in a room with them and you're tense and you're like, why do I feel this way? Well, because of schema, because of the things you heard, the way the media and the news portray certain groups of people, the things that happen around us gives our brains information. Even when we're not trying to digest it, it's there. 
And so I share that part because I, I want people to understand how deep this is on a brain level. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because I know it's easy to say, no, I, I would never be this way. But we are all victims of it because the brain works the way it works. And the way confirmation yeah. bias happens is the more we learn something that fits with our beliefs, we hold on to it and we push away anything that will give us the ability to unlearn and think differently. But I do think the first step is looking inward and asking mm. ourselves, how am I creating a space of community? How am I teaching myself to honor difference? Because literally, I need to do it for my spirit, but I also need to do it to rewire the way my brain thinks. There's this concept particularly prevalent in the church, kind of like, let's fix it, let's fix you. And the read your Bible, go to church more, all of that is an attempt to kind of like, let's fix. So like the relationship between fix it and sit with it, because mm -hmm. a lot of what you're saying to me reads like, I need to sit with myself. You know that scripture, be still and know that I'm God. This stillness and awareness, but you're also promoting and propagating that we do it for others as we do it for ourselves, that we sit with each other. But what do we do with that, particularly that evangelical Christian, I got to fix you? I think that we have a very low tolerance for discomfort as people. Wow. Mm. And so the idea of being still is difficult, which is why we live in a society where anxiety is so prevalent. Because anxiousness, fear, and worry takes away from our ability to learn how to be still and find and cultivate joy and peace. And the key word is cultivate. Wow. I think a lot of us are waiting for joy to fall on our laps. And the only way that we can get joy is if we cultivate it by first learning to be still and sit with reality for what it is. We as people don't like to be uncomfortable. We don't like pain. We don't like hearing sob stories. We don't like being with other people in grief and distress. We find like, you know, cheerful quotes to give people. Like, you're going to get through this and everything mm. happens for a reason. And God won't give you more than you can handle. But I can't handle it. And God gave it to me. So what are we going to do about this? Right. You know, He's like we, always we, giving me stuff I can't handle. Exactly, that just doesn't work right? for me. Yeah, totally. But I think what happens is it engages in something called toxic positivity culture, which is we don't know how to sit in that discomfort. We're trying to find good things to cling to all the time that it actually suppresses other people from feeling like they can actually share their truth. It's like when someone passes away and already you're like, you know, you have to be strong. And it's like, seriously, I'm experiencing a death and I have to be strong right now. And that's toxic positivity. This feeling that we have to feel good at all times. And if you don't feel good, you're not grateful. Going back to that black and white thinking Whoa. and not examining the duality of our humanity. Jesus knew what it felt like to, to grieve. And he also knew what it felt like to have joy. So why yeah. wouldn't we have the pleasure of understanding what it feels like to live in both grief and sorrow and happiness and joy and all of those things existing at once, you know, but I think sometimes life becomes so complex that we look through a lens of black and white and we say, well, if I'm sad, then I'm ungrateful. If I'm sad, I'm not honoring God. If I'm sad, I'm not 
taking in more of my Bible. This emotion is not okay. So what can I do to fix it? Where wow. are all the life hacks? What is the thing that I can buy? Wow. You know, as a mm. mental health therapist, I can tell sometimes when I'm giving people information, they're looking at me like, Mina, I want you to give me a little more. And I'm like, I can't. I gave you what the information is and you have to be willing to sit through that pain and work through it. But we are such a consumer-based society. I guarantee if I created some sort of product to say you won't feel anymore, people would buy it. Yep. People would buy it. We are always looking for ways to bypass pain and discomfort. And we do not have a tolerance for distress. Mm. We do not have a tolerance for the negative emotions that actually are messengers and a gateway to help us understand the complexity in our humanity. And actually, in my opinion, brings us closer to God. Wow. You know, how are we trying to bypass pain when Jesus himself had to endure pain? Yep. You know what I mean? So we don't even want to feel the thing that Jesus had to feel in order to give us the life that he gave us. We want to say that, Jesus, I deserve happiness, but you didn't have happiness on earth. Mm. You had to endure pain, trauma, sorrow. But I'm telling myself, no, that can't be a life for me when he himself <laughs> yeah. had to do it yeah. and go through it. So I think that to me, that also brings us closer to God himself, where it's just like, even though this is hard and this is painful. I have to sit in it. I have mm. to sit in it for myself and I have to sit in it for other people because this is how we cultivate community. We have to learn how to nurture empathy and compassion by learning to sit in that darkness and recognizing that even in this space, light is going to come. Light will manifest itself. But right now, this is just a period that I'm in. And I think that it takes a while to get to that place of honoring suffering and honoring that this is just hard. But I do think that when we recognize that one, no painful moment lasts forever. Mm. I, I guarantee anyone <laughs> listening to this or even you both, there's probably moments in your own life and even in my life where I was like, wow, this is hard. How am I getting through this? And I got through it. There's this image that's viral where it shows us grief and we think that grief shrinks and in this image, it shows us how grief grows, but it fits around our lives. So wow. the pain is still there, but grief learns how to adjust as we grow and as we evolve. True. And so the pain that I felt when something terrible happened today, five years from now, it's not that I'm over it or forgotten about it, but my grief just learned how to merge itself in my life. And I can honor the duality of my emotions and recognize I can have joy and I have permission to grieve both at the same time. And Jesus gave me that. He himself wow. did it. Why yeah. can't I do it? Yeah. He's given me permission to do it because he's done it himself. And so I think it's really just about teaching ourselves. One of the things we have to do is practice mindfulness and say, let me be present in this moment. And when I'm sitting with someone and I feel uncomfortable, I need to pay attention to that discomfort. Instead of trying to run away from it, instead of trying to repair it and trying to play the role of savior, I need to practice mindfulness and say, wow, I feel so uncomfortable in my body right now. What can I do to honor that? Mm. Maybe I need to focus on my breaths. Maybe I need to engage in healthy venting. Maybe I need to do something in the moment, not to pretend or run from it, but just to honor it and sit with it and recognize that, wow, I actually do have the tolerance to get through hard things. And I think that's how we grow. Wow. Mm. Do you feel at all that part of our aversion to discomfort is that we're trying to make all of these boxes. I'm Republican, I'm Democrat, that mm. we put ourselves in and we put other people in mm. as a means to try to alleviate discomfort. Post-pandemic, 
political division like I've never experienced before in my lifetime and talking to my parents and even grandparents, it seems like unique to their lifetime. So at least in the span of the last 80 years, as well as social media in the information age, it seems like these things are converging together in what I can't help but imagine would be a mental health crisis. We look at our kids all the time and we just say, it's got to be really hard to be a teenager these days and to grow up right now as we conclude, because we've taken a lot of your time, what would you say is just the most practical number one tool that people really need to grab hold of? If they're going to do one thing to either protect ourselves from this swirl or to grab one lifeline if we're feeling like the swirl is too much all around us. Mm. Oh, that's a loaded question. Cause you're saying what's one thing. And I'm like, I, I have 15. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think we all, For the sake of our mental health, we could all be better at having boundaries Mm. and we can all Mm. be better at knowing where to draw the line, what our limits are. And when we see that stop sign in front of us, recognizing this is where I disengage, this is where I pause, this is where I resist urgency, because living in a very information heavy culture is really wearing down people's mental health because we have access to information everywhere we go. And before, like growing up, you went to school or you work and you rushed home and you had to turn on the TV and like get the antenna going and hoping that, you know, you got got a channel. And now you can get the news on Twitter. You can get the news on Instagram. You can get the news on Facebook. Then everyone is sharing their political beliefs and ideas and it's causing all this division and everyone is doing all of these things. And it's just like in your face, whether you want it there or not. And I think sometimes we have to just do the work of having boundaries with ourselves to say, this is where I'm going to disengage to protect my peace and Mm. to protect my mental health. Because first, to be able to do that, too, we need to be in tune with the things that trigger us. I cannot be exposed to hearing more news about this political thing. I cannot be exposed to hearing more news about another mass shooting and getting every single detail around the shooting. Mm. This Mm. is when I need to know that I need to pause, resist urgency, and I need to take a step back. And maybe I do need to go and be still and sit with myself and find community to co-regulate with and create peace with instead of me consistently exposing myself to things that can be very triggering for me. I think also, too, we do try to protect ourselves by putting everything in a box and we compartmentalize and then we also project. So we say, well, if I feel this way about this, then I'm going to project my beliefs on everyone. And I'm going to say, well, if I feel strongly about this, then I'm going to say that you have to do what I believe is right. And also when we feel certain things so strongly, confirmation bias kicks in. And so Mm. the more we get evidence, the more we get research and news that aligns with our belief systems or our thoughts, that pushes us away from being able to think outside the box and welcome differences of opinion and take away that projection because my experience is not your experience. So although I feel the way I feel and I believe the things that I believe, you are not me. So I don't really have a right to define and dictate what is right for you or what you can or cannot do. And we want to be in control. See, this is ego work, right? And (laughs) if we want to unpack ego, we need a whole nother hour. (laughs) Deal. 
all I was saying was, you know, there's a lot of ego involved that drives Mm. us to entitlement and selfishness. So being human is complex. There's a lot of things happening inwardly that we have to do the work of like being able to get to that place of feeling and say, oh, no, my ego is in a driver's seat right now. Oh, no, Mm. entitlement is in a driver's seat right now. And that's uncomfortable work to do, you know? And so again, this goes back to being still by having boundaries and just recognizing, I think for people who are really just looking for ways to disconnect and not be so exposed all the time to the different things that are happening, we just need to find ways to put limits in place, you know? And even limits with people being open to say, you know what, I'm going to have to disengage from this conversation right now. Or this conversation is making me feel a little overwhelmed and I need to revisit it another time. You know, so I think that we have to be able to, one, recognize triggers as the things that make us recognize when there's a lack of safety so that we can heal our nervous system. But also boundaries helps us to recognize that, you know what, I deserve this peace. Mm. I deserve to have a moment where I can be still. And the only way that I can have that is if I put a limit in place. And so I, I think that's the first step that many people I would encourage when you listen to this, like start thinking in your own area, whether it be digital boundaries, social media boundaries, and even boundaries with people. What are some limits that you need to start putting in place so that you can do the work of being still and hearing from God and doing all the things that you need to protect your peace and maintain your mental health. So powerful. Mina, you don't need us to tell you this, but you're heroic in your work and it has been a pure joy to have you on the show. We're grateful for you accepting our invitation. There will be more invitations to come. (laughs) And we just want to say thank you. This has been such a meaningful conversation for me personally. Seriously, thank you. So grateful. Thank you both. Thank you for having me and for this wonderful conversation. I appreciate it. And I will definitely be back. I accept the invitation. Yes. Yes. Part two to come. Stand by. (laughs) Hey, I never do this, Mina, but I'm going to ask it just in case. Um, For people who want more of your content, more Mm -hmm. of the work that you're doing, and be exposed to more tools that you're handing out to humanity, how can they do that? Yeah, well, people can follow me on Instagram. My handle is M-I-N-A-A underscore B. And you can also get some resources from my website, which is www.minab.com. Thank you for you and this time. Really amazing. Thank you. Wow, that was such an amazing conversation. I'm so blown away by Mina B and everything that she said. I think we need to pray. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus, we thank you that you care about our mental health that you are willing to sit with us, that you want to weep with us when we're weeping, that you want to rejoice with us when we're rejoicing. God, I really do believe according to your word that you want us to have healthy boundaries in place, that our yes will be yes, that our no will be no, that we will know the times and the seasons that are appropriate for the things that you're calling us and asking us to do. And Jesus, right now we ask for your wisdom so that we would know what boundaries to put in place. But God, we ask for your strength. God, you know that it's not always easy for us to stick to the things that we've determined would be best for our mental health. So Jesus, we pray that you would come and you would help us give us wisdom and give us strength so we can walk out these boundaries. Lord, not just for ourselves, but for others and for the sake of the people who are in our world, that we would be healthy and strong. And Lord, I pray for all of us as friends, as 
parents, as neighbors, as coworkers. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what the people in our lives are going through and let us begin to cultivate language that we can encourage each other in our mental health so we can be stronger together. We thank you for your love and for your presence in this conversation, Jesus. In your name, amen. This has been a presentation of OBB Sound, SP Projects, and Cadence 13. Executive produced by Chelsea Smith, Judah Smith, Michael D. Ratner, Scott Ratner, Elias Tanner, Scooter Braun, Scott Manson, James Shin, and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Caitlin Plummer and Eve Bishop of OBB Sound and Kyle Venuya of SB Projects. Produced by Lauren LaGrasso and Serena Regan of Cadence 13. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Daniel Chavez-Crook with editing support from Caitlin Plummer and Eve Bishop. Original composition by Colin Gilliard. Production support from Kristen Crosby and Dylan Martyr. OBB Sound is an OBB media company. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company.